Good morning. This is Dr. Dan Guerra, uh, Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the Inland Pacific Northwest. Today is actually the 17th of January, 2022. This will be the last lecture on the broad discussion of avirulence. We haven't talked that much about the concept of avirulence in the last two lectures, but I spent the first four, or maybe it's five, really getting into the detail of what the difference is between virulence and pathogenicity. Remember that virulence and then therefore its contradiction, avirulence, has to do with factors that are generated either by a pathogenic agent or during the course of pathogenesis between the agent and the host that allow for the complete transmission and reproduction and then further transmission of the pathogenic agent, be it a bacterium where it's most described, a fungus or parasite, or a virus, okay? Some kind of pathological agent has to be transferred. So what I wanna do in the last lecture is finish up our discussion of membrane lipid association with virulence and avirulence factors in the oral cavity and we were middle of discussion of the periodontal diseases. So that's where we're going to go and finish it. And you're going to see we're going to start talking about membrane fluidity, which is so important for this whole process, and indeed the pathogenesis of gingival periodontitis-causing bacteria. And because of that, this membrane fluidity uh, it's going to be amplified into a mini lecture I'm going to do uh, on video this week, um, just to remind you about um, the general characteristics of lipids and membranes and what we mean by fluidity. So that's a promise, and we're going to do that next before we even get to a new topic. Okay, so more on this period, periodontal disease and specifically on these ceramide lipids. Okay, that's where we were. Now, phosphorylated dihydroceramides that have been derived from bacteriodetes bacteria are found, as I mentioned, in multiple mucosal surfaces, including the oral cavity, the GI tract, and indeed the vagina. And this kind of lipid, these dihydroceramides, um, induce chemokine attraction and therefore generate gradients plus induce a multiplication of systemic pro-inflammatory cytokines, growth factors, matrix metalloproteases, and eicosanoid stimulation. All of this results in chronic and dense multiple eruption of autoimmune disease. So P. gingivalis phosphorylated dihydroceramides, particularly the phosphatidylethanolamine DHC, was shown in the paper we've been discussing for the last couple of lectures to significantly increase disease in Model animals, particularly in the murine model, it's been shown that these same PEDHCs 
will induce allergic encephalomyelitis, EAE. That is indeed a murine model for human multiple sclerosis. And therefore, understand that EAE is a murine model for autoimmune disease. So the increased autoimmune disease severity resulting from the administration of these P. gingivalis lipids was shown most discreetly with, I would say, at least five years of solid research to be mediated by toll-like receptor 2 dependent signaling. So through the enhanced TLR2-dependent autoimmune response, we we once again arrive at the fact that phosphatidylethanolamine DHCs, the hydroceramide lipids, and other minor classes of lipids, including those recently discussed here on the lecture, serine dipeptide lipids, actually account for that enhanced engagement of toll receptor 2. Also, I want you to recall that obesity-linked and diet-associated chronic inflammatory disease is directly a result of associated TLR2-dependent autoimmune responses as linked to oral cavity disease. Now, they're not dependent on, but they are closely associated. So recall this involves membrane fusion when you get a periodontal disease, such as from P. gingivitis, right? And this membrane fusion involves then receptor induction, then signal transduction, and then both a chromatin retailering and epigenetic modification of host gene expression. Most often detected after doing LC, that's liquid chromatography or GC gas chromatography, mass spectroscopy, were indeed, once they were purified, the dihydroceramide lipids of P. gingivalis and they're recovered directly from those diseased gingival tissues, especially phosphatidylglycerol DHCs and a lesser amount of phosphatidylethanolamine DHCs, okay? And some substituted phosphatidylglycerol DHCs. So PGDHCs were more abundant whenever examined than PE on periodontally diseased teeth. And what that might suggest, that there's a progression of disease that's associated with a shift from the strict dihydroceramide species, which are known to be released from multiple microbiota, and those microbiota associated with periodontitis. Or there could even be a shift in the transport mechanism and indeed, that could involve metabolic hydrolysis or substitution or transesterification reactions to regenerate specific porphyria DHC lipids in the diseased gingival 
tissues. Again, PE, dehydroceramides, and PG, dehydroceramides, also affect gingival fibroblasts differently. And that has something to do with the distinction between glycerol versus ethanolamine. One of, one of the things is charge, right? So as already mentioned, substituted glycerol DHCs cause fibroblasts to round in culture. So you get a morphological switch of the shape of fibroblasts when you alter lipid composition. And with it, you get an increased production of prostaglandin E2 via the cyclooxygenase pathways. And with that, interleukin-1-beta, the pro-inflammatory cytokine. And then you can promote apoptosis after the production of PG2 and IL-1-beta. And this occurs in endothelial cells and also in chondrocytes. Now, in contrast, phosphatidylethanolamine lipid fraction did not induce endothelial apoptosis, but it did still promote the cell rounding in gingival fibroblasts. So the rounding itself, the morphological change, is not sufficient to induce programmed cell death, but it is associated with it. So you have to tease away the two factors, right? Membrane-associated cellular shape via membrane-associated cellular fate. Now, because of an homologous synthetic phosphatidylethanolamine lipid standard without any isobranched fatty acids don't cause cell rounding, it was finally decided that the isobranched aliphatic chains also contribute to that rounding. And that makes sense because of the way this isobranching, because these are aliphatic side chains, are going to induce an alteration of the water-lipid ratio, and you're going to cause that inner portion, inner leaflet of the membrane to hydrogen bond tighter intramolecularly so that it closes off more water channels. And because the inner leaflet is going to have a higher composition of these lipids than the outer uh, leaflet, you're going to get the cell to curve and round around itself tighter. Okay, so this has been known for a long time in membrane biophysics. It's nothing unusual here, but um, when you're talking about actual cells that are associated with the gingiva, like with fibroblasts, and then we know that that is associated with a pathological state, it is of some note to wonder why the biophysical alteration itself could induce a, at least a prodromal pathology. And we'll get into the discussion of this later when I talk about membrane fluidity. Maybe not today, but when I do that general lecture, I promise. Now, the difference in the biological activities of PG and PEDHCs can also be attributed to the different phosphorylated head group substitutions and or addition of other fatty acids, including coesterified isobranch, as I just mentioned, C15 fatty acids. So the interpretation of this entire discussion for clinical association uh, linking dehydroceramides to pathology is complicated by the fact that other members of different bacterial genera 
in the oral cavity and also where else it shows pathology, such as in other micro, uh, micro, uh, mycosal surface, mucosal surfaces, such as in the gut, um, don't produce the same lipids, yet have pathogenic response. Okay, so it's the, the mucosal surfaces have specific bacterial biofilm to the oral cavity versus the gut. Let's just take those two. And you see similar lipids being produced, right? These dehydroceramides. And even with altered substitution with those iso um, substituted fatty acids, long alkane chains. But you don't always get the pathology. So what that tells you, again, using categorical logic, is that the environment plays a role. What kind of environment? The biofilm. What do I mean by that? The compositional patterning of the three-dimensional structure in time of all the bacteria involved in the production of the biofilm. Okay. And then membrane-associated alterations of that will or will not lead to a certain kind of pathology. You understand? Right. And there are various other bacteria that I could talk about. There's parabacterioides, there's Prevotella, there's Tanarella, and there's also, of course, Porphyromonas. However, none of those bacteria, except actually for T. forsythia, do you ever find as keystone pathogens in periodontitis. So that's, again, another example of how you can get to a certain point where you can see similarities or pattern recognition, and then you have to throw it out. And that's the key to understanding biochemistry. Patterns are important, and we talk about them. Structure begets function, I always say, right? Classical, canonical, biochemical statement. However, once you get into the details, you find contrarian um, and pseudo-paradoxical event ontologies that do not link a direct specific structure to a direct specific function universally. Okay, that's the important thing to understand. Now, a paper published back in Biophys Journal in 2005 will hopefully uh, illustrate a little bit of what I'm talking about in terms of membrane lipid composition. So just straightforward phosphatidylethanolamine is a glycerol lipid, and phosphatidylglycerol, also a glycerol lipid, are indeed a very significant lipid components of the inner excuse me, inner bacterial membrane. And in fact, when you model these membranes in three-dimensional space and you build them of, let's say, palmitoyl-oleobacetylethanolamine, that's shortened as POPE, okay? So you have palmitic acid in the one position, oleic acid in the two position, and it's a phosphoglycerol backbone with an ethanolamine as the polar group. That's called P-O-P-E, POPE. And compare that to the palmitoyl oleobacetylglycerol, which is POPG, and you generate a proportion of three to one, and you add sodium ions, which of course neutralizes the negative charge associated with the ionic uh, capacity of those lipids, you get a POPG bilayer. Now in the bilayer interfacial regions, that's where they are actually touching one another after the spontaneous production of a bilayer. The popes and the POPGs interact readily with one another 
via, of course, intermolecular hydrogen bonding, and also water bridges formed. Indeed, Pope is the main hydrogen bond donor in those bonds in either a PEPE or a PEPG hydrogen bonded bilayer. So the PGPG hydrogen bonds, when you just have acetylglycerol, they rarely form. Almost all of the POP, POPEs, okay, are hydrogen and or water bridge to either POPE or POPG, but PEPG links are indeed favored. So you have then a heterolipid molecular species mixing to make the bilayer when you allow the lipids to mix, when you add three to one in that ratio, which is common uh, um, distribution of those uh, membrane lipid molecular species in the, in the interbacterial membrane. And you have to add sodium to, again, neutralize the charges so this whole thing happens. And of course that would happen in vivo because you'd be controlling sodium transport, potassium transport via channels, right? So <clears throat> almost all the popes are hydrogen bound in a water bridge either to pope or POPG, but the PEPG links are favored. As I just said, the atom packing in the near interface region of the bilayer core is the tightest when you have those linkages for hydrogen bonding between PEPG. Now sodium will not bind readily to lipids, of course. So interlipid links via sodium are not common. Although POPG and POPE can comprise one bilayer, when you make a bilayer, when you make a double layer, okay, the properties start to differ. So from monolayer to bilayer, from those two molecular species of lipid, you start to get an alteration of that bonding pattern, particularly at the intermolecular level with the addition of the sodium ion. And the average surface area between the POPG is larger and the average vertical location of the POPG phosphate group is lower always than the palmitoyl phosphatidyl ethanolamine. So the glycerol phosphate group is always uh, in, in vertical location of that uh, phosphate group on POPG is always lower than the one found with POPE, okay? This gives you, again, the, an understanding of how the membrane adds to the morphological characteristic of the cell. So another thing I mentioned is that alkyl chains of palmitoyl-oleophosphatidylglycerol, that POPG, are more ordered and less densely packed than palmitoyl oleophosphatidyl ethanolamine chains, presumably because of this hydrogen bonding scenario. Okay. The main conclusion of the study back in 20, 2005 in Biophys Journal, I think I can say pretty straightforward, is that the PEPG bilayer, in that bilayer, the phosphatidyl ethanolamine is going to interact more often with phosphatidylglycerol than with phosphatidylethanolamine itself. 
And that is very likely a molecular level event behind the regulating mechanism developed by the bacteria during lipid biosynthesis to maintain its membrane integrity and therefore permeability and stability. And all of this can be associated with relative concentrational changes of phosphoglycerol and phosphoethanolamine within that membrane. Okay. A ceramide, let's go back to the discussion of ceramide here. Remember that ceramide can be catabolized by ceraminidases, and that will produce a monoacyllipid sphingosine. Also keep in mind that the phosphorylation is sphingosine by sphingosine 1 uh, kinase or 2 kinase, two different isoforms of the same enzyme, will yield soluble signaling metabolite of slightly different fatty acid composition, but in the bulk description will both be sphingosine 1-phosphates, REST1Ps. Now, in direct contrast to ceramide, sphingosine 1-phosphate has been known to be a potent proliferative, pro-survival, and pro-migratory factor in cell fate. And the majority of the signaling functions of sphingosine 1-phosphate when embedded in the membrane are indeed attributed to its activation at low nanomolar potency of a family of G-protein-coupled receptors. And all of those we described earlier in authentic biochemistry, those are all the sphingosine 1-phosphate receptors 1 through 5. And they all have different downstream processing sequelae in terms of what the functional readout is, one sphingosine, one phosphate, and the differing molecular species because of the two different kinases, will deliver to those five different receptors, thus potentiating multiple signatures of biochemical activation. For example, getting down to a clinical level, sphingosine, one phosphate signaling through either uh, of the receptors 1, 2, and 3 will promote glioblastoma cell invasiveness. And that's all mediated through the sphingosine kinase 1 dependent upregulation of a uric or urokinase plasminogen activator. And then ultimately its receptor as well as a secreted pro-invasive molecule that's associated. However, that's called CCN. However, sphingosine 1-phosphate also binds to and modifies the activity of specific intracellular proteins. And <laughs> we talked about this before too, you may not remember. And what it binds to and alters the activity of are histone deacetylases or sirtuins. And then that modification of histone deacetylase activity will then alter euchromatin to heterochromatin ratios and thus epigenetically change gene expression via the retailoring of that chromatin. Okay. So that's another very significant association. Now, I also tell you a little bit more about this metabolic shift favoring sphingosine 1-phosphate 
at the expense of ceramide and in it's associated with controlling glioblastoma angiogenesis. All right. It's a slightly different flavor here. Now, I want to remind you real quickly, you get the noble synthesis of ceramide. Um, and there are six different ceramide synthases, six different ones. I know I talked about this, this again, last fall, we were deeply into lipids in aging lectures, but there are six different ceramide synthases. Okay. And they're going to lead to different fates of that ceramide. So some of that ceramide, because of its molecular signature, will be more active in ceraminidase activity, generating free sphingosine, which can then be phosphorylated via either sphingosine kinase 1 or 2, making different molecular species of sphingosine 1-phosphate. And then ultimately, after um, the enzyme that synthesizes hexadiol, Desinal and ethanolamine phosphate lipids, you're going to have different molecular fates and cellular fates as a result. But ceramide, of course, also can be um, in flux with sphingomyelin, just either adding phosphorylcholine or with sphingomyelinase activity, removing it. And again, that phosphorylcholine isn't just left off, the phosphorylcholine is then added back to diacylglycerol to make phosphatidylcholine in the membrane. So that's a major shift between sphingomyelin to phosphatidylcholine, and that alters membrane dynamics too. But ceramide can also pick up just a hexosugar. And that's, these are the classical hexacyl ceramides. And hexacyl ceramides can be further metabolized to sulfatides and to more complex uh, glycosphingolipids. Okay. And when you look at these different lipid classes, you see them separate out differently with glioblastoma membranes versus healthy membranes. With glioblastoma membranes having a specific linear relationship to the ceramide synthesis in terms of the molecular species involved. Okay. We won't get into all of that subclassification data here because that's not what we're doing in this lecture, but I will some other time. So the maintenance of proper cell membrane fluidity is absolutely necessary for adequate diffusion of membrane components from lipids to nucleic acids to carbohydrates and proteins. And all of the influences of dynamics and topomolecular rearrangement will generate a functional and integral membrane protein complex, which of course are then going to give you the molecular signature of the cellular plasma membrane, allowing it to carry out communication networking with adjacent cells via autocrine fashion associated nearby cells via paracrine. And if these are, say, ductal cells, they're endocrine function. And I would argue any epithelial cell that's generating chemokines or cytokines, which can then launch a full-blown immune response with innate immune cells and also with T and B lymphocytes eventually, 
that that all carries out again, if not an endocrine function, certainly a systematic function. Notice I don't say systemic. Systemic means coming from the core and spreading out. Systematic means equally distributed throughout. And what gets equally distributed when there is a profound alteration of membrane lipid composition, as I just went through there real quickly with glioblastoma, is of course multiple opportunities for pathology, either localized, controlled, for example, uh, ending up with apoptosis as a programmed cell death that doesn't lead to further inflammatory response, or to ferritosis or necrotosis, which can lead to a much more massive pro-inflammatory signature in a specific site that can, of course, then enter circulation and spread out and give you a systematic hyper-inflammatory immune response. This is how important the lipids are, you understand? And here we're still basically talking about bacteria, right? (laughs) So in bacteria, you know, because bacteria are in all those mucosal surfaces and they're living either commensally or pathogenically. That's why we have to bring them into consideration whenever we talk about pathology, because we're ultimately leading to the potentiation of a pathological response. So I have to stop here. I had a couple more things to say, but I'm going to leave it for the video lecture, which you'll probably see me next on uh, very soon, where I'm going to talk about membrane fluidity uh, in general. And of course, talk about some clinical associations. This is Dr. Dan Guerra on the 17th of January, 2022, uh, saying bye for now. Good morning. This is Dr. Dan Guerra. Uh, Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the Inland Pacific Northwest. Today is actually the 17th of January, 2022. This will be the last lecture on the broad discussion of avirulence. We haven't talked that much about the concept of avirulence in the last two lectures, but I spent the first four, or maybe it's five, really getting into the detail of what the difference is between virulence and pathogenicity. Remember that virulence, and then therefore its contradiction, avirulence, has to do with factors that are generated either by a pathogenic agent or during the course of pathogenesis between the agent and the host that allow for the complete transmission and reproduction and then further transmission of the pathogenic agent, be it a bacterium, where it's most described, a fungus or parasite, or a virus, okay? Some kind of pathological agent has to be transferred. So what I want to do in the last lecture is finish up our discussion of membrane lipid association with virulence and avirulence factors in the oral cavity. And we were middle of discussion of the periodontal diseases. So that's where we're going to go and finish it. And you're going to see, we're going to start talking about membrane fluidity, which is so important for this whole process. And indeed the pathogenesis of gingival periodontitis causing bacteria. 
And because of that, this membrane fluidity uh, is going to be amplified into a mini lecture I'm going to do uh, on video this week, um, just to remind you about um, the general characteristics of lipids and membranes and what we mean by fluidity. So that's a promise, and we're going to do that next before we even get to a new topic. Okay, so more on this period periodontal disease and specifically on these ceramide lipids. Okay, that's where we were. Now, phosphorylated dihydroceramides that have been derived from bacteriodetes bacteria are found, as I mentioned, in multiple mucosal surfaces, including the oral cavity, the GI tract, and indeed the vagina. And this kind of lipid, these dihydroceramides, um, induce chemokine attraction and therefore generate gradients plus induce a multiplication of systemic pro-inflammatory cytokines, growth factors, matrix metalloproteases, and eicosanoid stimulation. All of this results in chronic and dense multiple eruption of autoimmune disease. So P. gingivalis phosphorylated dihydroceramides, particularly the phosphatidylethanolamine DHC, was shown in the paper we've been discussing for the last couple of lectures to significantly increase disease in Model animals, particularly in the murine model, it's been shown that these same PEDHCs will induce allergic encephalomyelitis, EAE. That is indeed a murine model for human multiple sclerosis. And therefore, understand that EAE is a murine model for autoimmune disease. So, the increased autoimmune disease severity resulting from the administration of these P. gingivalis lipids was shown most discreetly with, I would say, at least five years of solid research to be mediated by toll-like receptor 2 dependent signaling. So through the enhanced TLR2-dependent autoimmune response, we we once again arrive at the fact that phosphatidylethanolamine DHCs, the hydroceramide lipids, and other minor classes of lipids, including those recently discussed here on the lecture, serine dipeptide lipids, actually account for that enhanced engagement of toll-like receptor 2. Also, I want you to recall that obesity-linked and diet-associated chronic inflammatory disease is directly a result of associated TLR2-dependent autoimmune responses as linked to oral cavity disease. Now, they're not dependent on, but they are closely associated. So recall this involves membrane fusion 
when you get a periodontal disease, such as from P. gingivitis, right? And this membrane fusion involves then receptor induction, then signal transduction, and then both a chromatin retailering and epigenetic modification of host gene expression. Most often detected after doing LC, that's liquid chromatography or GC gas chromatography, mass spectroscopy, were indeed, once they were purified, the dihydroceramide lipids of P. gingivalis. And they're recovered directly from those diseased gingival tissues, especially phosphatidylglycerol DHCs and a lesser amount of phosphatidylethanolamine DHCs. Okay? And some substituted phosphatidylglycerol DHCs. So PGDHCs were more abundant whenever examined than PE on periodontally diseased teeth. And what that might suggest, that there's a progression of disease that's associated with a shift from the strict dihydroceramide species, which are known to be released from multiple microbiota, and those by microbiota associated with periodontitis. Or there could even be a shift in the transport mechanism. And indeed, that could involve metabolic hydrolysis or substitution or transesterification reactions to regenerate specific porphyria DHC lipids in the diseased gingival tissues. Again, PE dehydroceramides and PG dehydroceramides also affect gingival fibroblasts differently. And that has something to do with the distinction between glycerol versus ethanolamine. One of, one of the things is charge, right? So as already mentioned, substituted phosphoglycerol DHCs cause fibroblasts to round in culture. So you get a morphological switch of the shape of fibroblasts when you alter lipid composition. And with it, you get an increased production of prostaglandin E2 via the cyclooxygenase pathways. And with that, interleukin-1-beta, the pro-inflammatory cytokine, and then you can promote apoptosis after the production of PGE2 and IL-1-beta. And this occurs in endothelial cells and also in chondrocytes. Now, in contrast, phosphatidylethanolamine lipid fraction did not induce endothelial apoptosis, but it did still promote the cell rounding in gingival fibroblasts. So the rounding itself, the morphological change, is not sufficient to induce programmed cell death, but it is associated with it. So you have to tease away the two factors, right? Membrane-associated cellular shape via membrane-associated cellular fate. Now, because it, an homologous synthetic phosphatidylethanolamine lipid standard without any 
isobranched fatty acids don't cause cell rounding. It was finally decided that the isobranched aliphatic chains also contribute to that rounding. And that makes sense because of the way this isobranching, because these are aliphatic side chains, are going to induce an alteration of the water-lipid ratio. And you're going to cause that inner portion, inner leaflet of the membrane to hydrogen bond tighter intramolecularly so that it closes off more water channels. And because the inner leaflet is going to have a higher composition of these lipids than the outer leaflet, you're going to get the cell to curve and round around itself tighter. Okay, so this has been known for a long time in membrane biophysics. It's nothing unusual here, but um, when you're talking about actual cells that are associated with the gingiva, like with fibroblasts, and then we know that that is associated with a pathological state, it is of some note to wonder why the biophysical alteration itself could induce a, at least a prodromal pathology. And we'll get into the discussion of this later when I talk about membrane fluidity. Maybe not today, but when I do that general lecture, I promise. Now, the difference in the biological activities of PG and PEDHCs can also be attributed to the different phosphorylated head group substitutions and or addition of other fatty acids, including coesterified isobranch, as I just mentioned, C15 fatty acids. So the interpretation of this entire discussion for clinical association uh, linking to hydroceramides to pathology is complicated by the fact that other members of different bacterial genera in the oral cavity and also where else this shows pathology, such as in other micro, uh, micro, uh, mycosal surface, mucosal surfaces, such as in the gut, um, don't produce the same lipids, yet have pathogenic response. Okay, so it's the mucosal surfaces have specific bacterial biofilm to so the oral cavity versus the gut. Let's just take those two. And you see similar lipids being produced, right? These dehydroceramides. And even with altered substitution with those iso-substituted um, fatty acids, long alkane chains. But you don't always get the pathology. So what that tells you, again, using categorical logic, is that the environment plays a role. What kind of environment? The biofilm. What do I mean by that? the compositional patterning of the three-dimensional structure in time of all the bacteria involved in the production of the biofilm. Okay. And then membrane-associated alterations of that will or will not lead to a certain kind of pathology. You understand? Right. And there are various other bacteria that I could talk about. There's parabacterioides, there's prevotella, there's tanarella, and there's also, of course, Porphyromonas. However, none of those bacteria, except actually for T. forsythia, do you ever find as keystone pathogens in periodontitis. So that's, again, another example of how you can get to a certain point where you can see similarities or pattern recognition, and then you have to throw it out. And that's the key to understanding biochemistry. Patterns are important, and we talk about them. Structure begets function, I always say, right? Classical, canonical, 
biochemical statement. However, once you get into the details, you find contrarian um, and pseudo-paradoxical event ontologies that do not link a direct specific structure to a direct specific function universally. Okay, that's the important thing to understand. Now, paper published back in Biophys Journal in 2005 will hopefully uh, illustrate a little bit of what I'm talking about in terms of membrane lipid composition. So just straightforward phosphatidylethanolamine is a glycerol lipid, and phosphatidylglycerol, also a glycerol lipid, are indeed a very significant lipid components of the inner excuse me, inner bacterial membrane. And in fact, when you model these membranes in three-dimensional space, and you build them of, let's say, palmitoyl-oleophosphatidylethanolamine, that's shortened as POPE, okay? So you have palmitic acid in the one position, oleic acid in the two position, and it's a phosphoglycerol backbone with an ethanolamine as the polar group. That's called P-O-P-E, POPE. And compare that to the palmitoyl-oleophosphoglycerol, which is P-O-P-G, and you generate a proportion of three to one, and you add sodium ions, which of course neutralizes the negative charge associated with the ionic uh, capacity of those lipids, you get a pope popg bilayer. Now in the bilayer interfacial regions, that's where they are actually touching one another after the spontaneous production of a bilayer, the popes and the popgs interact readily with one another via, of course, intermolecular hydrogen bonding and also water bridges formed. Indeed, Pope is the main hydrogen bond donor in those bonds in either a PEPE or a PEPG hydrogen bonded bilayer. So the PGPG hydrogen bonds, when you just have phosphoglycerol, they rarely form. Almost all of the POP, POPEs, okay, are hydrogen and or water bridge to either POPE or POPG. But PEPG links are indeed favored. So you have then a heterolipid molecular species mixing to make the bilayer when you allow the lipids to mix when you add three to one in that ratio which is common uh, um, distribution of those uh, membrane lipid molecular species in the inner and the inner bacterial membrane and you have to add sodium to again neutralize the charges so this whole thing happens and of course that would happen in vivo because you'd be controlling sodium transport potassium transport via channels, right? So <clears throat> almost all the popes are hydrogen bound in a water bridge either to pope or POPG, but the PEPG links are favored. As I just said, the atom packing in the near interface region of the bilayer core is the tightest when you have those linkages for hydrogen bonding between PEPG. Now, sodium will not bind readily to lipids, of course. So interlipid links via sodium are not common, although 
P-O-P-G and P-O-P-E can comprise one bilayer. When you make a bilayer, when you make a double layer, okay, the properties start to differ. So from monolayer to bilayer, from those two molecular species of lipid, you start to get an alteration of that bonding pattern, particularly at the intermolecular level with the addition of the sodium ion. And the average surface area between the POPG is larger and the average vertical location of the POPG phosphate group is lower always than the palmitoyl ethanolamine. So the glycerol phosphate group is always uh, in, in vertical location of that uh, phosphate group on POPG is always lower than the one found with POPE, okay? This gives you, again, the, an understanding of how the membrane adds to the morphological characteristic of the cell. So another thing I mentioned is that alkyl chains of palmitoyl-oleophosphatoglycerol, that POPG, are more ordered and less densely packed than palmitoyl oleophosphatidyl ethanolamine chains, presumably because of this hydrogen bonding scenario. Okay. The main conclusion of the study back in 20, 2005 in Biophys Journal, I think I can say pretty straightforward, is that the PEPG bilayer, in that bilayer, the phosphatidyl ethanolamine is going to interact more often with phosphatidylglycerol than with phosphatidylethanolamine itself. And that is very likely a molecular level event behind the regulating mechanism developed by the bacteria during lipid biosynthesis to maintain its membrane integrity and therefore permeability and stability. And all of this can be associated with relative concentrational changes of phosphatidylglycerol, phosphatidylethanolamine within that membrane. Okay. A ceramide, let's go back to the discussion of ceramide here. Remember that ceramide can be catabolized by ceraminidases, and that will produce a monoacyl lipid sphingosine. Also keep in mind that the phosphorylation is sphingosine by sphingosine 1 uh, kinase or 2 kinase, two different isoforms of the same enzyme, will yield soluble signaling metabolite of slightly different fatty acid composition, but in the bulk description will both be sphingosine 1-phosphates, REST1Ps. Now, in direct contrast to ceramide, Sphingosine 1-phosphate has been known to be a potent proliferative, pro-survival, and pro-migratory factor in cell fate. And the majority of the signaling functions of sphingosine 1-phosphate when embedded in the membrane are indeed attributed to its activation at low nanomolar potency of a family of G-protein-coupled receptors. And all of those we described earlier in authentic biochemistry, those are all the sphingosine 1-phosphate receptors 1 through 5. 
and they all have different downstream processing sequelae in terms of what the functional readout is, one sphingosine, one phosphate, and the differing molecular species because of the two different kinases would deliver to those five different receptors, thus potentiating multiple signatures of biochemical activation. For example, getting down to a clinical level, sphingosine 1-phosphate signaling through either uh, of the receptors 1, 2, and 3 will promote glioblastoma cell invasiveness. And that's all mediated through the sphingosine kinase 1 dependent upregulation of a uric or urokinase plasminogen activator, and then ultimately its receptor, as well as a secreted pro-invasive molecule that's associated. However, that's called CCN. However, tringosine-1-phosphate also binds to and modifies the activity of specific intracellular proteins. And <laughs> we talked about this before too, you may not remember, and what it binds to and alters the activity of are histone deacetylases or sutuins. And then that modification of histone deacetylase activity will then alter euchromatin to heterochromatin ratios and thus epigenetically change gene expression via the retailoring of that chromatin. So that's another very significant association. Now, I also tell you a little bit more about this metabolic shift favoring sphingosine 1-phosphate at the expense of ceramide and in its associated with controlling glioblastoma angiogenesis. All right, it's a slightly different flavor here. Now, I wanna remind you real quickly, you get the novo synthesis of ceramide um, and there are six different ceramide synthases, six different ones. I know I talked about this, this again last fall, we were deeply into lipids in aging lectures, but there are six different ceramide synthases, okay? And they're going to lead to different fates of that ceramide. So some of that ceramide, because of its molecular signature, will be more active in ceraminidase activity, generating free sphingosine, which can then be phosphorylated via either sphingosine kinase one or two, making different molecular species of sphingosine one phosphate. And then ultimately after um, the enzyme that synthesizes hexadecinal and ethanolamine phosphate lipids, you're going to have different molecular fates and cellular fates as a result. But ceramide, of course, also can be um, in flux with sphingomyelin, just either adding phosphorylcholine or with sphingomyelinase activity, removing it. And again, that phosphorylcholine isn't just left off. The phosphorylcholine is then added back to diacylglycerol to make phosphatylcholine in the membrane. So that's this major shift between sphingomyelin to phosphatidylcholine, and that alters membrane dynamics too. But ceramide can also pick up just a hexosugar. 
And that's, these are the classical hexaseal ceramides. And hexaseal ceramides can be further metabolized to sulfatides and to more complex uh, glycosphingolipids. Okay? And when you look at these different lipid classes, you see them separate out differently with glioblastoma membranes versus healthy membranes. With glioblastoma membranes having a specific linear relationship to the ceramide synthesis in terms of the molecular species involved. Yeah. We won't get into all of that subclassification data here because that's not what we're doing in this lecture, but I will some other time. So the maintenance of proper cell membrane fluidity is absolutely necessary for adequate diffusion of membrane components from lipids to nucleic acids to carbohydrates and proteins. And all of the influences of dynamics and topomolecular rearrangement will generate a functional and integral membrane protein complex, which of course are then going to give you the molecular signature of the cellular plasma membrane, allowing it to carry out communication networking with adjacent cells via autocrine fashion, associated nearby cells via paracrine. And if these are, say, ductal cells, they're endocrine function. And I would argue any epithelial cell that's generating chemokines or cytokines, which can then launch a full-blown immune response with innate immune cells and also with T and B lymphocytes eventually, that that all carries out again, if not an endocrine function, certainly a systematic function. Notice I don't say systemic. Systemic means coming from the core and spreading out. Systematic means equally distributed throughout. And what gets equally distributed? When there is a profound alteration of membrane lipid composition, as I just went through there real quickly with glioblastoma, is, of course, multiple opportunities for pathology, either localized, controlled, for example, uh, ending up with apoptosis as a programmed cell death that doesn't lead to further inflammatory response, or to ferritosis or necrotosis, which can lead to a much more massive pro-inflammatory signature in a specific site that can, of course, then enter circulation and spread out and give you a systematic hyper-inflammatory immune response. Yeah. This is how important the lipids are, you understand? And here we're still basically talking about bacteria, right? <laughs> so in bacteria, you know, because bacteria are in all those mucosal surfaces and they're living either commensally or pathogenically. Right? That's why we have to bring them into consideration whenever we talk about pathology, because we're ultimately leading to the potentiation of a pathological response. So I have to stop here. I had a couple more things to say, but I'm gonna leave it for the video lecture, which you'll probably see me next on uh, very soon, where I'm gonna talk about membrane fluidity uh, in general. And of course, talk about some clinical associations. This is Dr. Dan Guerra on the 17th of January, 20. 22, uh, saying bye for now.